0: It was 2009 when a Russian doctor named Anatoly Brokov, he discovered an ancient bacteria which was embedded within the permafrost of a Siberian site, better known as Mammoth Mountain, according to Dr. Brokov. Uh, This bacteria has actually been alive for more than 3 million years. I would ask him to crunch the numbers again. But according to him, it's 3 million years old. And it's for this reason that many in the media began to refer to these microorganisms as eternal life bacteria. Wow. That sounds exciting. Eternal life bacteria. You know since the day of this discovery, scientists have been running tests on this bacteria. They've been running tests in fruit flies and in mice, all in the hopes that they might unlock the secrets of eternal life. Four years after the discovery, it was 2013, when Dr. Brokoff, he decided that it was time to start running human tests with this bacteria. But rather than looking for, you know, a test subject, he decided to become the guinea pig of his own experiments. It was at that point in time when he became the first person to receive an injection of the inactivated bacterial culture. Since then, he's been looking more and more and more like a caveman. It's crazy. No, I'm joking. That's, that's not what happened. He's actually been interviewed several times since receiving these injections. And, and, and he's quick to confess that he doesn't really know what the bacteria is doing inside of him. But he does tell us that he hasn't had the flu in a few years. And so that's nice. But here's what I can assure you of is this, that this Siberian bacteria, it will not provide him with eternal life. It just won't, it can't. You might not know this, but you know, we all have a desire for eternal life. We all have that drive to find whatever it is that we would you know, discover as the fountain of youth, if you will. And while this so-called search for the fountain of youth includes, you know, medical treatments that we think will, will prolong our lives or dietary restrictions that will help us to live a little longer or physical activities by which we stay in shape, you know, the, there are also those who are trying to ensure eternal life by attempting to appease our creator uh, in various different ways. And, and yet what these f- people are failing to all understand is, is that eternal life will not be insured by our works, Secondly, eternal life won't be insured by our wealth. Thirdly, and finally, we'll learn that eternal life won't be insured by our will. Well with this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Here we find the Lord, He's answering a question about eternal life. And as you make your way to the 18th chapter of Luke's gospel account, we should take a moment to put our text back into its context. First, help us to remember that the Lord Jesus was instructing the children of Israel about the importance of prayer. And after presenting them with two parables about prayer, parents began to bring their babies to Jesus so that he might pray for them and bless them. And, you know, after blessing the babies that were brought before him, that's when a self-righteous ruler approached the Lord with a question about eternal life. And with this context in mind, if you would, let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 18. We're going to begin reading there at verse 18. Here Luke writes, now a certain ruler asked him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one that is God. You know, the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now here in these verses, we're introduced to this certain ruler who had a specific question about eternal life. We can't be certain about the, this you know, unnamed individual's official position, but what we do know is that he was a certain ruler and the Greek word, which was rendered ruler, was often used of those who were noble by birth. And so by birth, he was of nobility. The same word was also used of those who, who held a primary position, like, like a commander-in-chief in the military or the leader of a tribe within the, tri- within the 12 tribes of Israel. We can't say for certain, but this man occupied some sort of position of leadership there in the land of Israel. And And yet, here we find him actually attempting to manipulate the mind of our Messiah, Jesus. Notice again there in verse 18, here again we learn that this certain ruler asked Jesus, saying, Good teacher, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's possible that this certain ruler truly believed that Jesus was, in fact, a good teacher. At the same time, it's also possible that he was attempting to be charming in order to manipulate the mind of our Messiah. If that's the case, then this compliment, well, it wasn't sincere at all. No, instead, it was flattery. And if it was flattery, then it may have been offered as a way to control the response of our Savior with this in mind, I can't help but to think uh, and remember what what, what King Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 31. There we learn that charm is deceitful. Charm is deceitful. And I know everyone is, you know, every little girl is taught by Disney to look for Prince Charming. And yet many people who found Prince Charming uh, ended up realizing in the long run that charm is deceitful. Now, this is not to suggest that all charming people are being purposefully deceptive because someone can be charming and not use it as a a way of deceiving, right? And yet there are those who use charm as a way to hide their true intentions. For example, you might not know this, but the world is actually filled with psycho uh, or sociopaths, I should say, who use excessive amounts of charm in order to manipulate the minds of those they're attempting to deceive and control. That being the case, we do well to remember that, you know, constant compliments could be nothing more than a deceptive distraction. We should also take a moment here to consider Christ's response uh, to that compliment. And and if you would look with me again here at verse 19 here, Jesus asks, why do you call me good? He he didn't just say, oh, uh, you think I'm a good teacher? Thanks for the compliment. No. He says, why do you call me good? Why are you complimenting me in this way? And he goes on and asks here, no one is good but one, that is God. Rather than receiving this compliment, Christ Jesus took the time to challenge this certain ruler. And and he did this by encouraging this man to consider the implications of this seemingly insincere flattery. And as we consider the way that this Jewish ruler complimented Jesus by calling him good teacher, I have no doubt that he was actually familiar with the 14th Psalm where David declares this. He says, there is none who does good, no, not one. There's none who does good. God alone is good all the time. Paul actually expounded upon this psalm in Romans chapter 3. It's there where he quotes the 14th psalm and tells us that there is none who does good, no, not one, and then goes on to expound upon this by writing this in verse 23 All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us do good all of the time, and the reason why is because we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's perfect standard. Therefore, God is the only one who is perfectly good all of the time. And without being the case, you know, the Lord Jesus encouraged that man to consider the implications of this compliment. And and I want you to think about it like this. Listen, if it's true that Jesus always taught what is good and without fail, well, then it only stands to reason that he must also be the physical incarnation of God the Son. The reason why? Well, it's because only God is good all of the time. So when this certain ruler came and said, good teacher. And Jesus says, well, why are you calling me good? Do you mean to say that I'm God incarnate? And I have a hard time believing that that's what he meant. Those who call Jesus a good teacher oftentimes reject things that Jesus taught. I can't even tell you how many times I've been talking with somebody and they say, well, you know, I, I believe that Jesus is a good teacher. And so then you believe that Jesus is God incarnate, right? Oh, no, I don't believe that. Well, is not that what he taught? That's exactly what he taught. As a matter of fact, it's in John chapter 8, it's verse 58, where Jesus declares Moses, assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus here is not only claiming to have existed before the birth of Abraham, but he was claiming equality with the God who revealed himself to Moses as the I am. So in this statement, Jesus is saying, I'm older than Abraham, and I'm actually the God who revealed himself to Moses there on Mount Sinai. For this reason, those who heard what he said there, they immediately took up stones because they wanted to stone him to death. And in this way, they were effectively accusing him of teaching blasphemy by claiming to be the great I am. What they were failing to realize is this, that the Lord Jesus truly is the incarnation of the great I am. And with that being the case, he was not guilty of teaching blasphemy. Instead, he was simply revealing his identity. What this also means then is that Jesus truly is the good teacher who always taught what is true. And yes, this of course includes the truthful teachings about his divine nature. Not only that, but Jesus was also teaching the truth in John chapter 8 where he declares this, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And while the word he there is in italics, what that tells us is that it's not in the original Greek. So here's what Jesus actually said. If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that Jesus is the incarnation of almighty God, you will die in your sins. I'm sure this was a bit shocking for this certain ruler to realize that Jesus wasn't going to just accept his flattery and he was going to challenge this man that, hey, do you really understand what you're saying when you call me good teacher? Because only one is good and that's God. Jesus is the good teacher because he is the I am who always taught what is true. Well, after using flattery to attempt to manipulate the mind of our Messiah, this ruler then presents him with a loaded question. And it's here in verse 18, where he asks, good teacher, what shall I do? To inherit eternal life. Now, we must not fail to notice that this unidentified ruler was not only presenting Jesus with this insincere compliment, but he was also petitioning the Lord with a loaded question. You see, uh, the reason why I call it a loaded question is, is because he, he's not asking here how unrighteous sinners might be spared from the punishment that we deserve. If, had he come to Jesus and said, look, I'm a sinner. I deserve the wrath of God. What can I do to escape that? That would be a sincere, truthful question but that's not what he asked. He asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He was asking what good works are required of those who want to earn eternal life. And in response to this loaded question, Jesus says, all of it. Which commandments do I got to keep? All of them. Which works do I have to perform? Every single one. Let's consider how Jesus puts it here in our text today. Look with me again uh, at verse 19. Here we learn that Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. As we take a closer look at the Lord's response, it's important to remember that this unrighteous ruler was asking how he could be saved by his good works. He was asking the Lord what he must do in order to earn eternal life, and with this question in mind, Jesus immediately points him to the Decalogue. He points him to the Ten Commandments, and he and he begins with the commandments that have to do with his relationship with other humans. Have you committed adultery? Have you committed murder? Have you stolen? Have you lied? Have you failed to honor your mother and father? Because those things are required of those who wish to earn eternal life. Simply put, those who want to work their way to heaven must keep the law of Moses and without fail. This was precisely the point that James was making in James chapter two. There he declares, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Or or, or how about this? Maybe you've never committed adultery and you've never murdered, but have you dishonored your parents? Oh, sure, maybe you're not a murderer. Maybe you're not an adulterer. But if you've dishonored your parents, if you've ever told a lie... You're guilty of the law. You're guilty of breaking the law. The person who tries to earn eternal life according to the good works of the law must keep the law of Moses without fail, not even stumbling in one point. Well, I guess that rules us all out. We've all sinned, we've all fallen short of God's perfect standard. And it's for this reason that Paul in Galatians chapter 2 puts it plainly where he assures us that we're justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Grasp that for a moment. Let it soak in. By the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. In other words, eternal life will never be earned by those who try to work their way to heaven. I like the way that Paul explained it in Ephesians chapter two, there he declares by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast according to paul by the, the grace of god by which sinners are saved from his righteous wrath the grace of god which which can save us from the from the punishment that we deserve it's, it's a free gift how much do you have to pay for a for a free gift the answer is nothing the grace of god by which we are saved is received by faith because it's a free gift And so by faith in the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we can receive the free gift of God's grace by which we are saved. And it is not of works and it is not a mixture of both. It's not a little bit of grace and a little bit of works. It's not shake and bake and I helped. It is completely the work of the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished there on the cross which is received by faith in him. Those who try to earn eternal life according to the works of the law will eventually discover that their works were insufficient to merit the salvation that our Messiah is freely offering to those who will simply trust in him. So we see that eternal life won't be insured by our works. Not only that, but eternal life won't be insured by our wealth. Now, with this as the focus, let's continue to consider the way that Christ Jesus is answering the question of that Jewish ruler. It's here in Luke chapter 18. If you would, let's pick up our study beginning at verse 22. Here Luke writes So, when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, who then can be saved? But he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus, he's exposing the delusional confidence of this certain ruler who believed that he could somehow work his way to heaven by keeping the law. And, and, and that's where he says, you know, hey, I've, I've done all this from my youth, right? This is nothing more than delusional confidence in his own works. And rather than allowing him to continue in this spiritual state of self-deception, Christ Jesus here takes the time to expose uh, the, the sin in his heart. And he did this by helping him to see that he actually loved his worldly wealth more than he loved his God. He claimed to have been this righteous ruler who had kept the law since his youth. But in reality, he was guilty of breaking the very first commandment, which is to have no other God before the true and living God. He allowed his wealth to become his God. Remember, it was back in verse 21 where the wealthy ruler assures the Lord Jesus that he's been consistently keeping the entirety of the law since the days of his youth. But what he failed to realize was that he was living in the delusion of self-deception, thinking that he was more righteous than he actually was. And with that being the case, the Lord Jesus loved him enough to expose the idolatry that was hidden in his heart. The proof of my point is found in the fact that he was Well, he was unwilling to give up his worldly wealth so that he could become a faithful follower of our Savior. Lord Jesus says, hey, go get rid of your wealth. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. Now, I just want to take a moment to point out that there are those who will use these verses as a proof text for teaching that the true followers of Christ will happily hand over all of their wealth to the leader, you know, of, of their own choosing. And, and listen, there is no shortage of religious cults where the leaders demand that their followers hand over all of their financials. And, and this includes, you know, Jim Jones, the leader of the people's temple. And, and then there was David Koresh, the leader of the branch Davidians. And let's not forget, forget uh, Gwen Shamblin and her way down workshop and all that. Sadly, many people have been duped by these sorts of leaders like Jim Jones and David Koresh and Gwen Shamlin who are quick to insist that the true followers of Christ, if you truly want to follow Christ, you've got to hand over all of your wealth. Who? To whom? To to the poor? No. They don't say, go give it away to the poor. They say, you bring it to me. Bring your finances to me and, and, and let me be in charge of it. And they use these verses as justification, as a proof text. That being the case, we would do well to realize that the Lord Jesus wasn't intending to create some sort of discipleship directive here in these verses, which would then require all of his future followers to subject themselves to this life of self-inflicted poverty. And in order to prove my point, I want to consider something that Paul wrote in the first letter that he sent to Pastor Timothy. So hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now, as you make your way to the sixth chapter of First Timothy, I just want to take a moment to point out that the epistles were actually given to help Christians to understand how we ought to serve the Lord during the church age. The church age is a very specific age, and it has very specific discipleship directives, which are all explained in the epistles, If you want to know how Christians ought to be living during the church age, then we must look to the instructions that we find in the New Testament epistles, which begin with Romans and ends with Jude. The reason why this is so important and the reason for why the epistles were given is to provide us with the primary principles for Christian living during the church age. And having spent the last 26 years studying the scriptures, I can assure you this morning that there is not one passage in the New Testament epistles that require the born-again believer to hand over all their worldly wealth in order to become followers of Jesus Christ. That verse does not exist. It's a false doctrine that has to be built up out of this, uh, this passage from Luke. At the same time, though, we are warned about the love of money. And according to Paul, the love of money is a root that produces all kinds of evil fruit. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you would look with me here, beginning at verse 6, here Paul declares, Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, we with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Here in these verses we find Paul helping his pastoral protege, timothy he's helping him to understand that christians have been called to learn how to be content with what we've received from the lord Uh, the reason why is because the disciples who develop a desire to be rich they begin to become discontent with the perfect provision of the lord and instead they end up allowing their love of money to lead them into many foolish and harmful lusts as they turn their back on the lord From this then, we can see here that that worldly wealth in and of itself is not inherently evil. Those who try to tell you that money is the root of all evil are twisting the scripture. Worldly wealth by itself is not inherently evil. No one said it's the love of money. The love of money becomes a root which then produces the evil fruits of covetousness and idolatry. For this reason that Paul encouraged Pastor Timothy to remember that godliness with contentment is great gain. If we would simply set out to live a godly life, and as we're led by the Lord, then just be content with his perfect provision, we'll receive greater gain in that context than if we live our life in pursuit of worldly wealth. As we consider this encouragement, I believe that we have a better uh, grasp of the reason for why Christ Jesus commanded the wealthy ruler back in Luke 18 to give his wealth to the poor. He wasn't creating a discipleship directive, which every future follower of Christ should follow. But instead, he's addressing the love of money that the Lord knew was in the heart of this specific ruler. And with that, let's make our way back to the 18th chapter of Luke. You would look with me again here at Luke chapter 18. I want to draw your attention to the middle of verse 22. Here the Lord Jesus says to this, uh, this uh, certain ruler, he says, you still lack one thing, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. Here in these verses, we find this wealthy ruler responding to the instruction of the Lord with great sorrow. He was filled with great sorrow, and the reason why is because, well, he didn't want to give up his money, he didn't want to sacrifice his idol. He was also sorrowful because, you know, his delusional state of self righteousness had just been exposed. He realized that he was guilty of sin. Christ Jesus also helped him to see that he actually loved his money more than anything else. For all these reasons, he was filled with great sorrow as he realized that he wasn't willing to give up his worldly wealth for the sake of following our Savior Jesus. We should also notice how the Lord responded to his sorrow. So look with me again there at verse 24. Here the Lord tells us that, or actually Luke tells us that when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, as we consider our Savior's response, you know, we should take a moment to consider the explanation that some teachers tend to offer as they lead us to, be, to believe here that, you know, there was, you know, this small narrow gate in the ancient city of Jerusalem and, and this small little gate was known as the eye of the needle. And, and then they proceed to convince us that, you know, a camel would have to bow its head down in order to proceed through this tiny gate. And, and from this, they introduce a point of application by leading us to believe that, you know, it's not impossible for a wealthy person to go into heaven, but instead he just needs to humble himself he needs to bow his head before the lord and then he can enter the kingdom of god and this is all fine and well and all but uh, listen as we consider this spiritualized interpretation of the text uh, you, you might be interested to know that there isn't any real evidence of a tiny gate in jerusalem called the eye of a needle it's a wonderful little story that has no basis in reality chances are jesus was referring to get this a full grown camel and the eye of a literal needle. Yeah. And if you're thinking, well, that's crazy, exactly. That's the point. The point is, it's impossible. And if you prefer the other interpretation, that's fine. You know, listen, there's something to be said about, you know, God receiving those who are humble. And there, there is actually a biblical point that can be made from that story and all. But listen, Jesus was well known for insane over exaggeration, exaggerated illustrations to make his points. Right. We know that's the case. For example, you know, there's the time when he described the critical disparaging disciples as those ha- who have a, a plank protruding from their eye socket. Yeah, he talked about, you know, these critical, you know, Christians walking around with a huge plank sticking out of their eyeball while, while they're attempting to remove the speck from, uh, from someone else's eye, right? Completely over-exaggeration of a point. Nobody's walking around with a big old plank sticking out of their eye. The Lord Jesus also talked about you know, how those whose right hand sins against them cut it off, right? Sever your hand to stop sin. Well, we know that this is an over-exaggeration because listen, if once you cut one hand off, you still have the other hand to sin with and once you only have one hand, then you can't cut your other hand off, right? So you're kind of stuck trying to figure out how to get rid of sin severing the second hand. Clearly, these are Over exaggerated illustrations intended to make an important point. Yeah, I believe that Jesus is talking about a fully grown camel passing through the eye of a literal needle, and with that, it's never going to happen. Never going to happen. Rather than trying to figure out some way to somehow fit a camel through the eye of a needle by talking about some little gate that never existed. We would do well just to realize that the Lord Jesus is helping his audience to realize that it is easier for a full-sized camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person who's trusting in their worldly wealth to obtain eternal life. The rich person trusting in their own wealth rather than in Jesus Christ will never ensure eternal life because their faith is in something that can't save them. And knowing that this is exactly what Jesus meant, well, those who heard him were shocked by the revelation. As a matter of fact, look with me again here at Luke 18, verse 26. Here Luke tells us that those who heard it said, but what about the little gate there in Jerusalem? No, that's not what what it says. Sorry. That was the message version of the Bible. Verse 26, it says, those who heard it said, who then can be saved? yeah exactly the point. I'll hope you to know that the average Jew there in the first century, well, they had been taught that the worldly wealth uh, that, that worldly wealth was actually evidence of god 's blessings, kind of similar to what you find in word faith churches, you know that, that the more wealth you have, the more blessed you are of God, and that's what they believed that. Worldly wealth was evidence of God's blessing or or God's favor. Therefore, they also believed that those who were blessed with worldly wealth had no problem obtaining eternal life, that the wealthiest people were sure to enter into eternal life. So when Jesus here informs them that it's impossible for those who are trusting in riches to enter the kingdom of God, they they were completely shocked by this. Completely blown away as they began to realize that obtaining eternal life was more difficult than they originally believed. If if the wealthy can't buy their way in, who can? Well, listen, we've already learned that no one's going to work their way into heaven. And now we understand that the wealthiest people in the world won't be able to buy their way into heaven. And while it's true that those who belong to the wealthy class tend to get their way while they're here on earth, whether it's, you know, through campaign contributions or by bribing those that uh, sit in judgment over us and, you know, wealthy people have even been known to, you know, get like a five-month prison sentence and then get out after one day. Uh, How does that work? Mm, Some greasy palms, probably. Wealthy people know how to use their wealth to get their way here on earth. And yet these are the very people who are trusting in their wealth and one day they're going to realize that that doesn't fly with Jesus. Jesus paved the streets of heaven with gold. So when wealthy people stand before Jesus and start pulling the gold out of their pockets, he's going to be like, what are you doing with asphalt? What are you going to do with that asphalt? Nothing. Nothing. Wealthy people will not be able to buy the favor of God on the day of judgment. That being the case, we should consider the way that the Lord responded to their question when they asked who can be saved. Well, look with me there at verse 27. Jesus there declares the things which are impossible with men are what? Possible with God. Praise the Lord. If you have the liberty to write in your Bibles, then you should underline this passage unless you're Reading on a phone, don't underline because you'll scroll and then it'll be gone. But this is a great verse to memorize or to underline and and to remember. Isn't it nice to know that the things which are completely impossible for us are entirely possible for God? Regardless of your financial status here on earth, we can all obtain eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's true whether you're wealthy or whether you're poor. Our admission ticket was already purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ and it's waiting at will call for those who will simply receive it. But those who try to buy their way into heaven will be sorely disappointed. And the reason why is because eternal life won't be insured by our works, nor will it be insured by our wealth. Thirdly and finally, eternal life will not be insured by our will. With this as the focus, I want to continue to consider Luke's account of this conversation that's unfolding here in Luke chapter 18. Here now we find the apostle Peter stepping in to share how awesome he actually is. So if you would uh, look with me here at Luke chapter 18, we'll pick up our study at verse 28. Here Luke tells us that Peter said, see, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, assuredly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Here in these verses, we find the Apostle Peter reminding the Lord Jesus about everything that they had sacrificed so that they could become the, the, the servants of our Savior. They had sacrificed everything in order to become the faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this way, we find Peter engaging in what we call a humble brag. We're your servants, Lord, who have given up everything. Look how awesome we are. We deserve to enter the kingdom of God. We deserve eternal life because of all the sacrifices we've made. We left everything to follow you. And in response to Peter's humble brag, the Lord basically said, really, let's take a moment to examine the exchange here. (laughs) Let's take a moment to consider the exchange rate. Think about it for a moment. On the day when Peter agreed to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, he was exchanging his high and lofty position as a fisherman for the higher calling of becoming a fisher of men. Peter agreed to leave his little hut so that he could go and serve, you, know, his savior. What did he get in exchange? Heavenly mansion. I'm not so sure the exchange rate here is in your favor, Peter. What did you really give up compared to what you're going to receive? Peter gave up his guilt for forgiveness. Peter gave up his wicked works so that he could become the apostle of Christ. What did he really sacrifice in comparison to what he received. Yeah, Peter sacrificed his own will. Peter had a plan. He had a fishing business. He was going to make some money. He was going to get a bigger house. He was going to do his thing. He was going to get a four-camel garage. He had his plan. And yeah, he sacrificed that plan as he submit his will to the will of God. And Jesus says, yeah, but you're getting the better end of the deal. What did Jesus get? Death on the cross? Jesus received the punishment that we deserve so that we could receive the forgiveness that we don't deserve. We definitely got the better end of that deal, amen? Amen. In order to further grasp the point that I want to make here, it's important for us to remember that Peter and the rest of the apostles, they, they didn't just wake up one day and decide to go and find Jesus, right? They didn't just wake up one day and say, oh, you know, I think the Messiah is around. Let's go see if he's around. Let's, let's, let's go become his fault." No, no, no. Jesus came and called them. Jesus came and found them. Jesus came and invited them to become his disciples. And to prove my point, let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 15. You see, it's here in the 15th chapter of John's gospel account. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's reminding his disciples about the way that the Lord has appointed them for salvation and that he was the one who came and called to them and invited them to come and follow him so that they could engage in this incredible exchange, which benefits the believer. Let's consider how Christ puts it here in John chapter 15. Look with me there at verse 16. Here the Lord declares, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give you. Now, here in this verse, we find Jesus reminding his disciples about the fact that he was the one who chose them. He was the one who appointed them for their ministerial positions. And and what this means then is that those who answered the call of Christ by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we should be quick to realize that the free gift of grace that we've received wasn't achieved because we willed it so. You didn't wake up one day and say, you know, by my will, I'm going to go and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. No, rather, it was the will of the one who chose us first. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. We chose him. Why? Because he first chose us. To further grasp of the point that I'm seeking to make, let's turn in our Bibles now to John chapter 1. And as you make your way to the first chapter of John's gospel account, I just want to take a moment to remind you that every single one of us were born under the curse of Adam's sin. Yeah, we were all born under the curse. We all received the imputation of Adam's sin. And as a result, every unrepentant unbeliever is born spiritually dead. And it's for this reason that the will of fallen man is entirely contrary to the will of God. The carnal mind is at war with God and will not subject itself to him, not by its initial choosing. That being the case, we can be certain that our salvation is not based on our will. We didn't will ourselves into the grace of God. No, this is based on God's will. Let's consider how John puts it here in John chapter 1. Look with me there beginning at verse 12. Here John writes, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who, what? Who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will, or not, not of blood, not, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, of God's will. The Apostle John is helping his audience to understand that the free gift of grace by which we are saved is not offered to us because of our natural birth. It's not like God looked down and said, hey, this guy's bloodline is really, really cool. Let's save them. Nope. You're not saved because you were born to the right family or because you have this incredible bloodline. You're not, you're not saved because you willed it to be true. You know, those who try to tell us that, you know, well, God just looked down the corridor of time. And as he looked down the corridor of time, he saw who would choose him. And so he submit his will to ours. Really? That's what God, God submit his will to ours. God looked down the corridor of time and and made a choice about who's going to be saved because he could see who's going to choose him first. No, no, he chose us first. He appointed us first. The free gift of grace by which we are saved was made available to us because it's God's will to provide every person with an opportunity to receive his saving grace. And now those who receive him and those who believe in his name have been given the right to become the children of God because God willed it. This is precisely the point that Peter was making in second Peter chapter three. There he declares the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's not God's will to let people perish in the fires of hell. And it's for this reason that hell was created for the devil and his demons. God didn't create hell for humans. And because it's His will that everyone should be saved, He's now patiently providing every person with the same opportunity to repent and receive the free gift of grace by faith in Jesus Christ. And knowing that we'll never initiate this search on our own, God the Father sent the Holy Spirit to draw us, to convict our hearts, so that we might submit our will to the will of the one who sacrificed His only begotten Son, so that sinners like us might be saved. That's right. It's the Lord's will to provide every person with an opportunity to be saved from everlasting punishment. At the same time, God has also will to allow every person to make up their own minds about this. It's God's will that we reject or receive the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And while it's true that those who choose to reject our Redeemer will end up suffering in eternal punishment, it's also true that those who will repent and those who will receive the calling of Christ, well, we can also rejoice in knowing that we've embraced the eternal life that the Lord provides to those who simply trust in Him, receiving from Him the forgiveness of sins. From this I'm happy to tell you that every sacrifice that we make now as we submit our will to the will of our Savior, every sacrifice we make now will be repaid with everlasting rewards. Once we submit our will to His will and trusting in Jesus Christ, every sacrifice we make from here until the day we find ourselves standing in the presence of our Savior, every sacrifice will be rewarded. Were you rejected by friends or maybe family members after becoming a born again believer? If so, the Lord has promised to provide you with an everlasting family as we enter into his heavenly kingdom. Did you end up losing your job or maybe losing some clients along the way after becoming a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? If so, you can rejoice in knowing that the Lord is going to reward you with everlasting riches as we enter into eternal life. I like the way that the Lord Jesus put it in Matthew chapter 19 there. He declares everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. The Lord is no debtor to his disciples he will reward us for every sacrifice we've made in his name. That being the case, I encourage you to remember what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter two. There he declares, therefore my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. In other words, the born-again believer has been called to now work out our salvation with fear and trembling as we enter into the process of sanctification. As we submit our will to the will of God by faith in Jesus Christ, we begin to engage in the process of sanctification, uh, which happens as we continue daily to submit our will to the perfect will of God. Yeah, we all, we all have a will. We all had a plan before we came to Christ. We all had our goals. But once we submit our will to the Lord Jesus Christ at that moment of salvation, the Lord then calls us to continue working that out, working out our salvation through sanctification in fear and in trembling, realizing that every day we must continue to submit our will to the will of God. And yeah, that's gonna, that's gonna cause us to sacrifice some stuff. That, that's gonna cause us to, to give up some things that the Lord wants us to let go of so that we can serve our Savior according to, to the will of him who is working in us so that our will is in line with the good pleasure of His will. Now, as we begin to wrap up this study, it's important for us to remember that the eternal life that we all truly desire, it isn't something we access through medical treatments. You know, you, you can you can get, you know, medical treatments done, you know, from today to the to, to the day of your death. You, you can get so many facelifts for the rest of your life that, you know by the time you die, your nose is on the back side of your head. But you're going to die. You, you can get all the vaccines that you possibly can so that your arm looks like a, an old junkie. Still going to die. You can engage in all the dietary restrictions, eating the, the right things and not eating the wrong things and making sure that you're watching your weight and all these sorts of, but you're still going to die. That's why I say praise the Lord Pass the biscuits. And give me some more butter. I've been called to hasten the day of the Lord. I'm not trying to stay here longer than I need to. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. And I, and I love, you know, I, I, I love engaging in mountain biking. It gets me some physical activity and exercise, but listen, I'm still going to die. Maybe mountain biking. These things will not ensure eternal life. This corrupt body has to give way to the incorrupt body that we receive in the resurrection. And those who are seeking to secure eternal life must remember that it will not be insured by our works. Eternal life will not be insured by our wealth. And eternal life will not be insured by our will. Instead, eternal life is a gift of grace that God provides to those who trust in him. I like the way that Jesus described it in John chapter 17. There he declares this. He says, this is eternal life. You want to know what eternal life is? Well, here we go. Jesus is telling us, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Christian, listen, eternal life. It's not just about a quantity of life. That's what we tend to think about eternal life, you know, being really, really long time, uh, you know, that we continue to live with the Lord forever and ever, you know. So we just think about, you know, quantity of life lasts forevermore. And that's true. But eternal life is so much more than that. Eternal life is about a quality of life that's enjoyed by those who develop a deep abiding relationship with God by faith in his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. This is eternal life that we might have a relationship with our Redeemer today and forevermore. With that being the case, I encourage you in closing, let's spend time every day enjoying the eternal life which is experienced by those who embrace the one who alone can ensure eternal life. Let's pray.